0: Hello, and welcome to the TechDirt podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, This week and next week on the podcast, we're going to be playing uh, a panel discussion that I was a part of that was put together uh, by uh, the Lincoln Network uh, with some help uh, from myself. Um, And it is on the topic of protocols versus platforms, which is something that I've written a whole bunch about. Uh, And so uh, with Lincoln we put together this fun panel discussion um it's a it was uh, done in San Francisco a few weeks ago uh and uh, because it's so long we're going to split it into two separate podcasts one this week and one next week um the panel discussion was moderated by Marshall Koslov, uh, who is the Director of Outreach and Media from the Lincoln Network, and at the beginning, he'll introduce the other panelists uh, besides myself, so you get a sense of who they are, uh, and it is a fun discussion that goes in a whole bunch of different directions, uh, and we thought you might enjoy it. So here you go. Enjoy. The world is increasingly
1: technological, so we have better get with Bullies for pulling the wool on us Painting and taking on all the blatant Tempting Thanks for coming, everyone. My name is Marshall Kozloff, our director of outreach and media. It's not clear what that title means, so hopefully, we'll figure that out tonight. Um, to introduce our guests here, we have Ashley Tyson, who um, is the co-founder of the Web3 Foundation. We have Mike Masnik, who is the co-founder, the founder and editor of. Um, Tech Dirt. And most importantly, he is the author of Protocols, Not Platforms, A Technological Approach to Free Speech. It's a um, short but incredibly valuable introduction and sort of argument on this topic. We have a few copies right behind us, so please stop by and grab one, and it's obviously available online, too. We're also joined by Cory Doctorow. Um, Cory is a uh, science fiction author, um, a journalist, and he's involved with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And finally, we have Mai Sutton. Uh, Mai is a writer, a community organizer, and she is the steward of Soto Media. Sorry, sorry, Soto Mesh. Um, too many worlds intersecting here. Um, So I just wanna start us off and start with Mike specifically because this is sort of your argument and we're framing it around this. Um, You say that for sort of the past decade, there was a lot of optimism about the internet, free speech, sort of connecting people and enabling everything. Um, So firstly to you, what changed, right? Because you, you argue about this, this, this narrative has shifted pretty quickly, and then I'm curious, after you answer, how everyone, especially from the specific backgrounds you're bringing here, how do you think this discussion went from one of optimism to a very, very pessimistic one? Um, <laughs> start with the easy
0: questions, huh? So, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think a whole bunch of things have changed, and um, in, in terms of there's one element, which is that, the companies that sort of, you know, created the internet that we, that we know and that people appreciated certainly got a lot bigger and a lot more powerful, and that has raised a lot of concerns. Um, at the same time, we've had a world where um, suddenly more and more people are at least aware and, and beginning to understand that um, how companies use their data has an impact on their daily lives, and that has sort of... Gotten people to begin to think about these things, and then I, I think honestly, a lot of what changed the narrative is the election in 2016. Um, and whatever side of the the political spectrum you want to sit on, um, that took many people by surprise. And a lot of people started looking around for, you know, what uh, what created that result. And an easy target was um, some of the the elements of. of large companies and social media in terms of like how they presented information. Um, and so a sort of a combination of these things led to, I think, the general narrative shifting of one where social media and these companies were enabling speech and enabling people to connect to one where maybe people are speaking too much and maybe people are <laughs> connecting too much and maybe that's a problem if some people don't like the results of that. Yeah, Ashley, what do you think? I have to
2: turn this on. Hmm. Hello. Okay, um, so I, st- I started my career off uh, working at one of these first social media agencies uh, in New York City, and uh, we were one of the first agencies to build, like, a Facebook app for brands, and that was really cool and innovative at the time, and, you know, we wanted to ask people for their information and their friends lists and their birthdays so that we could send them really nice coupons and, you know, target some, like, specific offers that they would really like, so I thought that this was really exciting, and then as we started diving deep and deeper into it um, it exposed to me kind of like a world that I wasn't very comfortable with and people started winning these awards for big data and everyone was like yeah isn't it great like we know everything about somebody and we can hyper target this ad to them so I started seeing from um, that perspective kind of like things that I really didn't like in the industry and started exploring um, different methods in which uh, we could kind of like escape that reality and uh, through a number of vehicles eventually. I ended up at the Web3 Foundation, and so we fund decentralized protocols that um, you know, will hopefully prevent and circumvent that type of thing from happening. Right.
1: Maya um, and Corey, um, you could share a mic. Follow- All right. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs>
3: no, we're going we're to share a mic here. Is it on? I, I, I turned my off, sorry. Is it on? No. Okay. Tap, tap. <laughs> All right, here we, go. we go. Hi. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think that the critics of tech and its boosters both uh, indulge in the same sin, which is uh, technological exceptionalism. right <laughs> So that the technological exceptionalist account of why tech is a problem is that tech is uniquely terrible, that it, uh, it has these unique characteristics. First of all, it's run by evil super geniuses. And second of all, it enjoys these mystical network effects that allow it to capture these huge uh, shares of the market that prohibit new entrants from, from coming into the market. And that's how the entire internet has devolved into five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four. <laughs> and, and I think that technological exceptionalism is a sin no matter who practices it. Um, I, I think that you know, tech had the great misfortune to be born at the same time that we were sunsetting uh, antitrust and anti monopoly laws. Uh, you know, uh, we, we have uh, Ronald Reagan going out on the campaign trail the year the Apple II Plus hits stores. And really, there's just never been anyone in the boardroom who lived through a, a, a brutal antitrust, uh, uh, you know, 20-year investigation of the likes that AT&T endured. And and when it was tried with Microsoft, it kind of ended in ignominy. And as a result, we have tech companies whose uh, uh, alleged network effect growths, when you, when you kind of scrutinize them, really look a lot more like just plain old trust creation, right? Companies that buy their major competitors, companies that buy up their nascent competitors and strangle them in the cradle so they can't grow to challenge them, uh, companies that create vertical monopolies and, and don't and aren't bound by the kind of structural separation that was once a commonplace when you had big firms. And as a result, tech has grown to have this enormous uh, scale and thus this enormous salience. So this is the other part of the technological exceptionalism that tech is either exceptionally wicked or uh, or requires these exceptional super geniuses. Because after all, if you're going to be in charge of the social lives of 2.5 billion people, you have to be an exceptional person. And my thesis is really that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg may be uniquely unsuited to being in charge (laughs) of 2.5 billion people's social lives, but it's not like there's a successor waiting in the wings who we could put in charge of the social lives of 2.5 billion people. It may just be that what we need to do is, is restore that kind of pluralism and technological self-determination that allowed people to have policies set close to them by people who were attuned to their needs, who were also fearful that they might leave for a competitor. You know, Facebook lost... Uh, 15 million 13 to 34-year-olds in 2018 Mm -hmm. It was the largest U.S. exodus ever from Facebook, but they all ended up on Instagram. (laughs) So when that happens, you can see why firms are no longer disciplined by the market. So it may be that that tech enjoys some network effects. I mean, it's certain that it does, but tech was not the the only industry to become concentrated. You know, we have three talent agencies in Hollywood. I, I live in Burbank, and... The writers have been on strike for half a year now because all three talent agencies are owned by private equity funds that have started taking less money for their clients in exchange for packaging fees for the agents. Right? They're shopping writers to four studios. It was five last year, now it's four. And they're trying to get their material onto about four ISPs, which will shortly be about three right? Uh, Eyeglasses are down to one company. Luxottica in Italy owns every eyewear brand you've ever heard of. And pro wrestling is down to one company. And so if it's really (laughs) that there's something exceptional about tech that makes it concentrate, what is it about pro wrestling that makes it concentrate? You know, perhaps tech exceptionalism is a sin. Perhaps the real problem is that we haven't told companies that they shouldn't buy their competitors. That they shouldn't merge with their competitors, and that they shouldn't
4: corner vertical markets.
3: All right. <laughs> um,
4: yeah. To answer um, Marshall's question too about the shift from pessimism or optimism to pessimism, I guess I'd say that I, I left Facebook in like 2012 or something after like ha- having enough, <laughs> right? And. Um, There was definitely, I think, a move. I mean, I I would say that I was sort of part of the Occupy movement and um, at least nominally like part of that uh, idealism that because of this uh, total breakdown in like many systems, the financial system, the government, uh, also technology, that like instead of thinking about this pessimistically, we should actually think about this optimistically. And um, that definitely led me to be very attracted to the distributed web, decentralized web, however you want to define that D in D-web, <laughs> um, in the optimism in that there can be these alternative infrastructure, there can be different ways of owning infrastructure that uh, can be helped by technology. And I, you know, we'll talk about that more later, But um, but but this idea that... We can create new ways of people interacting with each other online by, by examining again how the internet is structured, and uh, I think there's a really big opening there. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of pessimism, but I guess I just sort of see Facebook, Google, a lot of these companies of having like a, you know, having been a ship on fire for like many years now, (laughs) and so I've sort of gone beyond them and be like, well, actually, there's like a lot of Great opportunities to build something different.
1: Um, so, Mike, my last sort of setup question here is: in the paper, you specifically use the word crisis, or or you you, you say that the current situation is somewhat of a crisis. Um, it's increasingly untenable for the companies that run these platforms and for the users. And I think something I'm skeptical about is the idea that there even is such a, so much of a problem. I think your average Facebook user is probably dissatisfied. They're probably dissatisfied with tech, but everyone is dissatisfied with every single institution in our society. So I think the, like my last sort of setup thing is sort of in a world where everyone is skeptical of the media, skeptical of government, skeptical of tech, is the current average use case actually that bad? Right, So there, there are people who think they're censored by tech platforms. There are, there are sort of like, and we talked about this before, there are, there are niche communities that think they're underserved by the current system. But it's just not clear to me that there is a mass of people who are demanding change in their actual actions that they're doing.
0: Yeah, no, I, I actually think that's right. I don't think that, um, I, I think the average person doesn't care. And, and they're not thinking about these things. I think a lot of the narrative is very much a narrative, right? And it's a narrative among certain groups of people, um, whether it's media, whether it's politicians. um, uh, But, you know, for the average users of these platforms, they they don't pay that much attention. They might feel a little bit icky about these things. I don't think that is what is driving any of this. But that doesn't mean that there, you know, aren't good reasons to look for better alternatives. And the sort of crisis element is that was more to the point of um, you know the people who are paying attention and the people who are driving that narrative between the media and policymakers um, even if the users don 't care even if honestly even if the users are completely happy with these services, if the media and politicians decide that they 're not it doesn 't really matter yeah. what the what the users think mm-hmm. um, and so and and that 's step one step two of that is that the, the problems that are being discussed and whether or not they're really problems or whether or not they're, the nature of the problems are accurately described, um, those problems are only going to become more and more pronounced over time. And and um, and I think that the various ways in which people think they're solving these problems aren't going to solve any of these problems, if anything, are only going to, to make them worse. Um, and so the, the sort of crisis language that I use, I don't even remember the exact context. It's been almost a year since I actually wrote the damn thing. <laughs> um, it, you know, is that it, it? It becomes a very difficult situation because of the pressure from the media and from policymakers, and that that is only going to expand over time. There's nothing that I see that will drive it in the other direction. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe suddenly the media and politicians just decide that that these you know four or five platforms are. Wonderful and we should leave them alone, but I don't see
1: anything that makes that likely so, so let's get into the actual implementation here right so the, the the idea that we're talking about is sort of returning to the the 1990s internet, which is much more based on um, protocols it was it was open, it was much less um, centralized. Why did we go away from that system right so it, it, these things systems don 't just centralize for no reason there, there, there are user decisions, there are sort of market dynamics that sort of force that centralization. How do we actually go back to that sort of system right like who, who we said we who is we right? Is there some sort of forcing function here and this is if this is for anyone, please jump in uh,
0: i mean I'll start. i 'll start I mean so. You have a, there's a few different things. You asked a few different questions, and I think there are a few different answers to each of those questions, right? So, um, to some extent, um, part of the reason why we went away from that was that building protocols is difficult, and and, they're, and keeping them updated is difficult, uh, and there are a lot of challenges there, and there's there's sort of challenges of management and governance um, that are very, very tricky. Uh, there are challenges in sort of keeping protocols updated and useful over time, um, which, historically have been very, very challenging. Um, And then there's the challenges of the business model, right, so it wasn't paying anyone to keep some of these protocols, it was a labor of love in in many, many cases, Um, and that made it difficult. And then you had the incentive then was for platforms to come along, sort of uh, centralize everything, control everything, but also control the ability to make profit, often Huge, huge amounts of profit. Uh, And with them being able to focus on innovating on it, that certainly drove, you know, they were able to innovate much faster, do much more, and and enable much more in terms of just being generally user friendly. that, that that got a lot of attention. Now the question is, how do you start to move back to that? That's what you know. a lot of the paper tries to describe why things might be different this time. And some of it is that we begin to discover the problems as we discussed in sort of the first round of questions about the larger platforms that might make at least some people uh, worry about these things. Um, you have the fact that these platforms have gotten so large that that, what I originally said of the faster levels of innovation might start to peter out. Big companies are not necessarily famous for their ability to continually innovate. If you can start to bring in competitors in competitive situations, that allows for, for the competition to drive innovation. Um, and frankly, there's the opportunity that this time around, with protocols, you might be able to put in place an actual business model, um, whether that's mm-hmm. cryptocurrency or other elements that enable people to work on protocols in a way that they don't have to own all of the data, they don't have to own all the, um, the the content and, and, and relationships, um, yet they can still actually um, make some money off of it. Maybe not the same types of monopoly profits of of a large company, but um, still certainly can, can be quite well off. Yeah, Ashley?
2: Um. I actually am super curious, and I don't know if you have the answer, Mike, because I don't know. Jack Dorsey sorted, cited your paper when he talked about decentralizing Twitter. So I'm actually still really curious how that use case plays out, and perhaps you don't have the exact answers well, here. Okay, but. so
0: I'm well. I'm not Jack Dorsey, right? I can't. <laughs> I certainly cannot speak for Jack Dorsey. Um, but but so Jack citing the paper was interesting too, right? So part of the paper um, was written. Uh, obviously before he cited it, and part of it was to try and hopefully convince some people at these companies that this was a the direction that they could, could take. So this gets back to to, to the earlier question of, of the users. The users are not going to switch on their own for the most part. Um, if you look, as Corey said, a, a lot of people have left Facebook, but they went to Instagram, right? they uh, lots of people have built sort of protocol based solutions. Every day somebody's reaching out to me saying, I, I did this already. And I say, How many people are using it? And the answer is not very many, right? Um, and so, you know, part of what was, you know, what, what this was designed to lay out was a reason why companies might want to move in this direction to avoid some of the, uh, you know, potential fights that they were going to have with politicians and the media over time. Um, And the idea that a company like Twitter might decide to move in this direction is very interesting and potentially very powerful because it brings the users. Whereas just building it and hoping that they will come has not proven to work. And unless there's some sort of big reason that drives people from one of these platforms to a protocol, it's going to be very difficult to do that. So if one of these platforms, like a Twitter, comes in and says, hey, we're going to just take all these however many hundreds of millions of people, and put them onto this protocol and open this up, that's very powerful in terms of just accelerating the process by which this might occur.
3: Um, So I I think that uh, historically technology has been very vibrant because of something intrinsic to the nature of technology. So I'm gonna be a tech exceptionalist for a minute here. (laughs) Um, There is a characteristic of general purposeness to the idea of a Turing-complete machine to a universal network that makes it very hard to exclude competitors, right? I made a device that does X, Y, and Z, uh, but I charge for Z well, I've made a device that does Z for free, and I plug it into your device that does X and Y, right? And and in a world of universal computers, that's a very hard thing to exclude. Whether we're talking about VT uh, codes being uh, replicated by competitors, whether we're talking about Phoenix Computing cloning the uh, IBM PC ROMs, whether we're talking about the um, uh, alt hierarchy being grafted onto Usenet and and circumventing the the backbone cabal who said that the internet couldn't have anything about sex or drugs on it and and immediately overtaking the alt hierarchy, overtakes all of Usenet, becomes the dominant form of our communication. Whether it's Apple reverse engineering the iWork suite and creating, or the Office suite and creating iWork and creating a whole interoperable set of products that Microsoft couldn't exclude and that could work hand-in-hand, and rescued Mac OS from being uh, excluded from the enterprise. All of these things are kind of hymns to the the virtues of general-purposeness. But the fact that the IT industry as we understand it today or the tech industry as we understand it today grows up in the uh, absence of these monopoly controls means that the firms do have a first-mover advantage. That first-mover advantage is that they get rich enough, fast enough, to buy laws that allow them to pull up the ladder behind them that they get to create a thicket around the kind of interoperability tactics that they used to engage in that, that says, when I did it, it was the legitimate progress of an important enterprise, but when you do it to me, it's nothing but piracy. And so we see that with software patents. We see it with anti-circumvention rules uh, under the DMCA. We see it with radical interpretations of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act that make violating terms of service into a felony. And now we see it with Oracle v. Google. right, We're, we're re-implementing an API becomes a a copyright violation. And so these firms are, are able to establish this thicket around them, and they're able to short circuit this thing that historically used to happen, which is that if you had the dominant service, right, if you were MySpace, and everyone who might want to be a Facebook user was on MySpace, Facebook had a really easy remedy, which is that they could make a MySpace bot Right? You would give it your MySpace credentials, it would log into MySpace, pretend to be you, get your white- waiting MySpace messages out of your inbox, put them in your Facebook inbox, let you reply to them and then pilot them back into MySpace with a footer that says why are you still using MySpace, <laughs> right? Facebook sued a company that did that to them, successfully established a new precedent that makes it impossible to ever do that to Facebook in the Power Ventures suit. So what we have now is instead of this idea where if your firm is bringing in billions of dollars a year and growing double digits year on year that it's the kind of thing that investors want to invest in competitors to now investors call that the kill zone and they don't want to fund any firms that might go up against any line of business that the big tech platforms want to go into and there is a and, and i think that there is a real crisis because the real crisis is that the firms because they are now at such scale that their tiniest mistakes have such enormous significance for so many people that we will end up with these firms being turned into regulated monopolies. That rather than fixing the internet, we'll fix the platforms. And what we'll do is we'll establish these state-like duties for them. You have to police copyright, you have to police hate speech, you have to police terrorism, you have to police all kinds of things that only the largest firms can afford to do, that these firms themselves couldn't have afforded to do until they got this big. And what that means is that we can uh, abandon the idea that anyone will ever come in and do to them what they did to the companies that came before them. And that, I think, is the worst of all possible worlds.
1: Uh, just to jump on something you said real quick, if you don't, actually, sure. if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. What's the problem with policing hate speech and policing terrorism? Right. So just to add to that, right? Well, know,
3: there's nothing wrong with them, but, but they're the job of states. right? So if you think about like, the history of the Bell system. So the Bell system, AT&T, used to have these incredible ideas about what it would take to maintain the Bell system. They said you couldn't connect anything to the Bell system without their permission. So they went after a company called Hushaphone. Hushaphone phone made a little plastic cup that fit over the receiver of your phone so that when you were talking into your phone, it would be harder to eavesdrop on you. And Bell went after them. AT&T went after them, and they said, by connecting this plastic cup to your telephone receiver, you have endangered the sanctity of the Bell system. <laughs> and, and because the Bell system has been deputized to be an integral part of the American uh, emergency response and law enforcement mechanism, you have endangered America itself. And the Hushophone was the step too far for them. And they finally, they lost that. And, and that mechanical interconnections precedent is what allowed for an enormous new number of things. And then they did the same thing with a company called Carterphone that made a radio bridge for handsets. And between Carterphone and Hushophone, this is how we get answering machines and then modems and all kinds of amazing and innovative things. Uh, I, I, have nothing, I have nothing against state-like duties being performed. I have everything against them being performed by giant state-regulated monopolies.
4: Um, to speak on the crisis issue, so I was at EFF for five years before going into freelance building, other things, and I was at EFF during the Sopa pipa fight uh, when a lot of big platforms like Facebook, Google, Wiki, Wikimedia uh, did a blackout of their websites, and it was like this really big galvanizing moment when you're like, oh wow, actually tech companies care about us. <laughs> like they actually want the web to be open, they, you know, they don't want to be you know, the arbiter, they don't wanna be this like intermediary to uh, essentially moderate speech and moderate, in that case, uh, copyrighted content. And then um, I was, my role at EFF was doing trade policy and specifically intellectual property policy in international areas and uh, so what I saw after that was um, very disillusioning to say, this, say the least which was uh, essentially they were opposing any SOPA-PIPA policies so any expansion of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act but they were totally okay with the DMCA being expanded to other countries around the world so that the kinds of things that they were already doing in the United States like um, doing takedowns for content, um, you know, DRM rules, things like that, they were totally okay with that being okay, being implemented in other countries because they were already doing it in the United States, which meant that all of these new startups, all of these potentially very innovative things from other countries, mostly developing countries, were being choked off. Um, and no matter how many times we said that that would be, happen, they didn't care. And so I think... The last, you know, ten or so years, we've seen a obviously a big shift from "don't do evil" to, you know, um, we are going to be the internet. <laughs> from everything from Facebook doing zero rating to becoming zero rating, meaning uh, Facebook's policy of becoming the platform that many millions of people in India and, for example, Brazil, before they banned it, um, see Facebook. So, so their understanding of the internet is Facebook, right? So. Um, in that environment, uh, it's really important for us to shift towards this idea of interoperability. Um, as someone mentioned, I, pre- I think it was Mike, mentioning, there are all of these protocols now, though. Like, um, What was interesting in uh, Jack Dorsey's Twitter thread was that uh, it didn't mention anything about this Uh, protocol, this actually social, the social media protocol uh, federated one called ActivityPub, which is what Mastodon is based upon, and it actually went through the whole process of becoming a standard at the W3C, the World Wide Web Consortium, and went through the whole process of having multi-stakeholder dialogue, you know, looking at it, you know, um, how many other platforms could implement this. It's totally open, it's totally... Uh, allows other entrants to be on top of activity pub and yet uh, they didn't mention it they twitter didn't mention it so i think it's not a question of like whether we need a new protocol i think it's really a question of like we should look at what we have let's it's not about building new technologies it's about like what do we have in terms of like the resources, the uh, the money resources we have in technology, the the brain power that we have in technology, and think about like other organizations. Like, I mean, maybe the W three C isn't the best organization to create a new standard, but there needs to be something where people talk to each other and decide that something works for the internet. It is a type of public infrastructure, and if we want to have other businesses be able to thrive on it, like public streets enable people to walk to different businesses, then we need to have some openness in terms of how we decide these things. And you know, something that struck me with Jack Dorsey's Tweets again is like the thing he was describing sounded awfully like a standards body. He was like, "Well, we'd have like five people who are like experts, and we're going to like have them decide what's what we're going to how we're going to move forward, whether we adopt one that already exists or make one from scratch, and we are going to have a we're going to build a community of stakeholders, including nonprofit organizations, academics, policymakers, etc." And you know, I think there's um, constantly this thing in technology where it's like, we just keep recreating the thing and it's actually like, well, actually the thing already exists
2: um, and um, yeah,
4: mm-hmm. I'll stop there for now.
2: I have a question about that and I think it touches a little bit about your question um, about, you know, do people even care and your statement that, well, it might not be people that care, right? It might not be the users, but it might be uh, the media and the regulators, right? So it seems like the issue with like a Mastodon and with a lot of these protocols that a lot of us probably in this room are building is that there's just not adoption of them. And so Twitter actually creates a method for bringing their network effects to a, a decentralized protocol. So I guess my, my question that I struggle with in, in my space is like, how do we, how do we get Um, kind of these non-niche communities to care. I mean, I've been censored. Companies that I've worked with have been censored before, so it's personally very important to me, but I certainly understand that, like, outside of this room, it might not be a big consideration to a lot of people. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned... That it's media and policy um, because maybe that is, as as someone who works with crypto anarchists and does not touch the policy world at all, I'm super curious in how you use it um, to actually maybe force this change rather than us trying to kind of brute force our way into network effects and mainstream adoption if that's not what people are looking for.
1: Please. Right. Uh, answer that, please. Yeah, sure. So, um, it's an open platform. Go uh, for it. Yes, yeah, yeah. so there we go. Uh, it, no, it's, a, it's
0: an interesting question. It's one that's come up, and I've had a few people sort of approach me after, after having written the paper and saying, like, oh, okay, so the answer is just have the government, like, enforce protocols or something <laughs> or, like, require Facebook to become a protocol. And it's like, that's not going to work uh, for a whole wide variety of reasons, and I think the the much more interesting things are a bunch of things that that Corey was talking about before, where you look at everything that is in the law right now that is preventing that from happening, and I think there are a bunch of of, uh, existing laws, whether the DMCA, um, you know, the the 1201 part of the DMCA, which Corey does a lot of work on, which is all the anti-circumvention stuff, which basically is allowing people to block stuff. The CFAA, which was the Power Ventures case, where Facebook was able to to block Power Ventures from letting people give Power, for people who don't know, I don't know how many people, Power was this website, that their idea was you could give your credentials for Facebook and for other social media, and they would build sort of a meta social network where you could suck in your data from different things. Facebook sued them, so they were violating the terms of service, even though the users were giving their permission and their uh, credentials, um, but they lost because they said it was a CFAA violation. So I think, you know, fix the CFAA, fix um, you know, fix all of these aspects of the law, including the, the Oracle Google case now, which is actually uh, hugely important to this, which is uh, having to do with APIs, which gets into interoperability as well, and whether or not you can implement uh, somebody else's API and sort of build compatibility um, and interoperability into, into different things. You know, if the Supreme Court uh, upholds the existing ruling that that hearing is coming in a, in a month, um, that would be very, very dangerous. And I think so on the policy side, rather than like mandating this, which I think is, is like the, uh, you know, the, I was going to say something very insulting. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Please, uh, yeah. go for it. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it's, if, you're only, if you don't look at all the reasons why these things happened originally, and you just say, like, okay, this is an interesting idea, like, how do we push that forward? You just say, do that, and that ignores all the structural problems that created this mess in the first place. That's going to just create more messes. Looking back as to why we created this world, why we have this world where there isn't the sort of, you know, the adversarial interoperability, which is, you know, what Corey's been talking about, and looking at all of these structural things and the fact that these companies, as Corey said, these companies that used all these things to build up their, their base now and to build up their, their, their users now and they're sort of pulling up the, the ladder behind them, that's a problem. You know, figure out why that happened and, and deal with those issues and reverse those issues and I think that would, would um, be super helpful in terms of on the, on the policy side in terms of driving more interoperability. If you can allow someone to go in and say like, I, if, if I give permission, for some third-party company to go in and pull out all of my Facebook data, um, that should be allowed. That should be good. That and that could enable third parties to 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 step up and say, I'm going to create a competitor to Facebook, and I don't have to worry about having to recreate the wheel from from
2: scratch.